Barton's Candy. Does anyone remember Barton's Candy? <laughs> so <laughs> Barton's Candy, I don't either actually, so those who didn't. <laughs> I missed out. Barton's Candy was founded in New York by chocolatier Stephen Klein, a Viennese Jewish refugee. Uh, and with the high holy days approaching in 1970, Barton's Continental Chocolate Shop commissioned my father, James Grashow, to illustrate an advertisement in the New York Times. And that's the piece. Um, you can take a look at it later if you can't see it because of the reflection. I'll bring it down. He made a beautiful woodcut early in her, his career called Abraham the First Jew and made a hundred, a limited edition of a hundred prints signed and numbers. And it was a beautiful and it is a beautiful and powerful woodcut. Alongside the image in the New York Times, the ad included legends about Abraham's fight against idolatry, and the text concluded saying, Monday, September 23rd is Rosh Hashanah, and we're reminded of Abraham once again. The shofar blown during the synagogue services is a symbol of the ram which Abraham offered as a sacrifice in place of his son Isaac. His willingness to sacrifice even his own son is further proof of Abraham's undying devotion to the Lord, one Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Advertising looks a little different today than, <laughs> than that. But it was Barton's Chocolates uh, message to the Jewish community, and it had the Abraham piece. Well, there was a Swedish art dealer who saw the piece in the New York Times and loved it so much that he found my father. He found my, made his way to my parents' New York apartment, and he offered to sell the prints in Europe and um, send my father the money. So my parents agreed. That was very exciting. They put aside a couple of prints for themselves. And as the dealer was walking out, my father told him how much he admired his keychain, and which was like a little fold-out scissors or something. And the dealer said, here, you can have it. And then they never heard from him again. So this is before the internet. This is really, when somebody walked out of your life, you really, it was really hard to find them, especially if they went to Europe. So he took... Um, you know, maybe 95 of these prints and took them uh, to Europe with him, and they didn't hear from him again. My mother said, we were very naive and young. We were very trusting. So my father went on to have a very successful career. As many of you know, his prints have appeared regularly in the New York Times and in just about every major periodical in the country. There's a uh, piece about, there's a little film about him called The Cardboard Bernini on uh, PBS, and it's on Netflix. Um, he, um, many of you might know his work from uh, the album cover, Jethro Tull's Stand Up. He did that album cover, uh, as well as a number of others that you might know. Anyway, um, so I, what's interesting is that uh, when I became a rabbi, my parents thought it was appropriate that I would have one of the only leftover Abraham, the first Jew prince in the wall of my study. Um, so on July 12th, 2017, my father received the following email. It said, Dear Mr. Grashow, my father passed away a couple of years ago, and my mother also passed away, and we found this series of Abraham when we were cleaning out our estate. It's a series of 100, and we have lots of them. We are three siblings that live in Sweden and Norway, and we would love to have your input and look forward to hearing from you. 
Now, the children who found the pieces thought that they, they saw my father's work online and they thought they were worth something as so they wanted to find out more about them. But what they received back was this email from my parents. Hello and thank you for reaching out. The answers, this answers a mystery that started 47 years ago. Your father visited us in Manhattan and looked at the prints. He ultimately wanted the addition of Abraham promising distribution and payment. We remember distinctly he left with the prince and handed us a keychain with a folded out scissors. We never heard from him again. We were naive and we often laughed about how foolish we were at the time to let so much go for what turned out to be only a keychain. I would personally love to have some of the prints because your father had all of them. Um, so I wanted to share a, a couple of interesting things about this story. One um, is the, the honesty of the artist. Um, you know, because what could have happened, this is a print, there's a wood block that exists. What one could do is one could just make a hundred more prints. Um, you know, we own all of the blocks, but there's an integrity. You know, if you make an addition of a hundred, that's it. You never make any more. The block isn't destroyed, but you don't make any more, even if they're stolen. And so there's a great integrity there. Um, so the art dealer's children, what happened next, and I know some of you know this story because it was in the Jewish Journal and I was interviewed about it a couple of times, but there's a little bit of a new twist I want to put on it. Um, the, the art dealer's children, who are now 57, 60, and 62 years old, were so mortified. And they actually said that their father had only been an art dealer for about three years, and then he became a minister. <laughs> Which is interesting. <laughs> They loved the print very much, and it hung over their mantle, and, um, you know, they, they've always loved it. Um, and when they learned the truth, they wanted to atone for their father's wrongdoing. They decided to return the prints, but they wanted to do it in person. And so they arranged a date to fly to New York. They lived in, like I said, Sweden and Norway, in rural parts of those countries. And they flew to New York, took a train to Westport, Connecticut, where my father met them at the train, as soon as they brought this, this battered suitcase to uh, my parents' house and opened it up, the original prints were there in the original box. My mother burst into tears. There were 87 prints. Afterwards, the siblings and my parents shared a toast over champagne, and during lunch they kept repeating that they didn't understand their father's actions but wanted to make it right. The next morning, my parents received this email from the siblings saying, this day will stay in our memories all our lives. And we're so happy that we were able to correct one of our father's mistakes. So one of the things, we never thought that we'd see these prints again. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to do, and I um, made the suggestion to my parents, is that the prints came back to us, and maybe they were never meant to really be with us. You know, maybe they were trying to get out into the world. And so what we did was we offered them to synagogues around the world, um, to rabbis to have in their studies or in their lobbies. And we did this last year in July. And so about 60 or 70 of the prints have gone to different synagogues all around the world. And last year at High Holy Days, um, there were many rabbis who gave, gave this story as their sermon and then and displayed the print um, in their synagogue. So this year, I decided to look through the sermons that were given last year about this story and so here's just a couple little things that I pulled from some of those sermons. So Rabbi Andrea Kosnowski added to the story teaching, there's a great book called The Four Things That Matter Most that help us with the process of teshuva 
by beseeching us to have difficult conversations. And she adds, in his book, Dr. Ira Bayak suggests saying these four things as soon as possible. And the four things are, please forgive me, and I forgive you, and thank you, and I love you. And those are the four things that we should learn how to say, and that we should try to say as soon as we can. Rabbi Ron Fish wrote, we don't often correct other people's mistakes, large or small. The mistake was not ours, so we often abdicate responsibility for fixing it. But Judaism teaches that we live by a set of standards, and it's our responsibility to work towards the achievement of those values. And he adds that in Pirkei Avot, it teaches, Lo alecha hamlacha ligmor velo ata ben chorin which is, it is not your duty to finish the work, but you are not also free to abdicate responsibility either. So the job might be too big for you, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't participate at all. You don't have to finish the big job of correcting everything, but we do our part. He also added, as we spend the next 10 days pondering our opportunities for teshuva from this past year, we should also take care to consider what we can do to set things right How can we give back what we have taken? And more importantly, how can we give back what was taken from someone, even if it wasn't by us? So how do we do tikkuns, even if it's not our own tikkun? Rabbi Deborah Hirsch shared, this is print number 41. I don't know which number I have, actually, um, of Mr. Grashow's Abraham. It will hang in our synagogue, and each time we walk through the doors and our eyes meet it, let it serve as a precious reminder that change is always possible, And seeking forgiveness and wholeness is a year-long journey. Perhaps when we least expect it, we'll seize the moment anew and make a difference. And finally, um, Rabbi Ita Paskind, there were many, but I just pulled a couple. (laughs) Rabbi Ita Paskind taught, I'm reminded of the parable of the king with the most beautiful diamond. One day he dropped it and it cracked, and nobody could fix it until a lowly pauper etched a rose at the top of the crack and turned it into something even more beautiful. There's something so powerful about Catherine, Christer, and Charlotte. These are the three children who returned this print, the prince, who had nothing to do with the artwork, realizing the need for tikkun repair. Their effort, above and beyond simply returning the prince, created a new experience for both families, one that effectively etched a rose atop a 47-year crevice. Rabbi Piskin also added, God is, as Jonah ultimately accepts, Hanun Verachum, overflowing with compassion and mercy. It is this ultimate message that it is at the core of this season, at the essence of every reconciliation. We do it because it makes us better people, because it etches a rose atop the cracks in our relationship, and because it brings us closer to our creator. So here we are a year later, it is 5780, and dozen of these prints look out uh, from their frames in clergy studies and temple lobbies, sentinels and keeping watch. And I love the idea, and this is the, the message I want to leave you with, the idea that tshuva, that repentance, is not just about going back and repairing what was done in the past, and it's also not just about cleaning the slate and going forward fresh. Those are the ways we usually talk about repentance. It's a, it's, it's those things, but it's also a journey in and of itself. Just as these children decided not just to return the prints, send them, put postage on them and send them back, they decided to allow their father's transgression to become a journey for them. 
a journey that was an incredible journey of bonding, of exploration, of learning. And it's interesting to think that teshuva can be a journey that can be brave and revealing and wonderful and challenging and invigorating and beautiful and humorous and sometimes disappointing. But even in the disappointment, even if it's the worst outcome and people don't come together in reconciliation, it can bring about deep reflection, appreciation for true friends, and growth. So this season, think about the journeys that we will take, how far we will go to make a tikkun, to make a correction in this world. And may we have a shana tova, shana meaning year, but also meaning change, a good change and a good year.